we have to separate. Is this an ethical conversation? If it's, if it's ethical, moral, then that, that's one aspect. But if it truly is about health, there's no reason people should not be eating meat. If, if that is the true concern, and we're talking about authentic, evidence-based research, mm. there's no reason people should be cutting back on red meat. Did you know that a 100-calorie chocolate cake and a 100-calorie chicken breast do not actually have the same impact on your body? Okay, now if you're over the age of eight, then you probably think I'm nuts that I even pointed this out. But in the early days of Quest, I produced a YouTube series that discussed food myths in a very science and data-driven way. And well, this was one of the facts. And when I say, guys, people lost their shit, well, people lost their shit. We received so much freaking hate for it and were even accused of shaming certain foods. These groups claim that as long as it fits your macros, then it doesn't actually matter what you eat. And not only that, they thought it was negligible of us to say anything to the contrary. Apparently, I didn't get the memo that feelings outweigh facts. As a small startup in an effort to please people, we took the show down. Cut two years later, my gut felt like it erupted. I had SIBO, leaky gut, a gluten and lactose intolerance, and a parasite. And that was just the things we could identify. My hair was falling out, my nails were brittle from malnutrition, I couldn't stand up, I couldn't eat. It got so freaking bad, guys, that one day I put a bit of pepper, pepper, on my food, and my husband was seconds away from rushing me to the emergency room from the excruciating stomach pains it had caused. And the only thing that kept me going, the only thing I could actually stomach was protein, meat protein. But because I was so fearful of people coming after me, I was very hesitant to tell anyone that I basically was on a carnival diet and it was saving my life. You see, so many people want to label or shame food or even guilt the people that are eating those foods that up to this point, I've just steered away from the controversial subject. But the truth is, in hiding from it, I was doing everyone else suffering from similar issues an utter disservice. I actively wasn't helping people out of fear of getting backlash. But I realized that as a society, we have lost touch with what I think is the most important thing, what actually works. And so today, guys, I wanted to bring on a fearless, badass doctor that is no hold barred. A woman who's going to help us separate food shaming from actual studies. A woman of impact that is blunt and to the point who can discuss how we can leverage evidence-based medicine and emerging cutting-edge science to restore metabolism, balance hormones, and optimize body composition with the goal of lifelong vitality. With a human nutrition degree, she studied vitamin and mineral metabolism, chronic disease prevention and management, and the physiological effects of diet. So guys, put all of your preconceived notions aside and let's have a freaking honest and open discussion about food with the fierce Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. That was an epic intro. Go, go. You know, I've been so excited to have you on the show. 
I think you are utterly fearless. And you did an interview with my husband on his show, Health Theory. And where I want to start is right at the end, he asked you, if anyone can do just one thing to optimize their health, just one thing, what can they do? <laughs> and you actually said, eat more red meat. Yeah. And in that moment, as I'm watching the episode, in my head, I'm like, oh shit, she's <laughs> gonna get hate from that. Oh yeah. And in my research for this episode, that's where I freaking stopped. I was like, mm. hang on a minute. What the hell is happening to this world? Someone's asking you truly your advice as a doctor, as your practice, yeah. everything you've learned over all these years of study. Yeah. And your answer, my immediate reaction is, oh man, she's gonna get hate for that. <laughs> it was truly eye-opening for me yeah. that you're going to get backlash for saying something that may hurt someone's feelings. Yeah. So let's actually talk about the moralities of food, where sure. you said, you know, depending on where it comes from. It's like, I, I actually get that there's a humane way to do it. Um, but what do you think about people that even regardless of humane ways of doing things, that they would choose to not necessarily go down the meat route if you have literally said this is going to cure you? Right, so that, that group of individual, there's really nothing you can do to change their minds. So now we have an ethic and moral, you know, ethics and moral value where those are not necessarily science-based. Right. Right, so I have given up trying to change those minds. Mm. You know, I used to spend a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of energy trying to change those minds, saying, hey, look, all the evidence that you're looking, evidence that you're looking that red meat is bad for you or that protein is bad for you are these low-quality epidemiology-based studies, which big population doesn't prove anything, right? And then they're throwing out these randomized controlled trials. So when you think about the hierarchy mm. of evidence, so in you know, medicine and in science, there are different qualities of studies. So there is epidemiological studies. Break that down then. So epidemiology is population-based. Okay. You're not actually doing a study. You're taking and you're looking at large cohorts of people. We use epidemiology to test out a hypothesis. Okay. So we don't know if it works. We are just kind of guessing. Um, that's considered low-quality evidence. So no ethical physician or scientist would say, based on epidemiological data, I'm gonna make a global health recommendation. Okay. Never. Interesting, almost all the data that talks about red meat or protein being bad for you is all epidemiology data. Mm. So what's happening is the scientific community and those that study protein or protein experts are up against low-quality data. Mm. So now you have individuals that are not trained to look at science saying, but this study came out saying meat's bad for you or red meat's bad for you based on low-quality epidemiology. That's not adequate. You can't in good faith say this is true, right? right? You can say maybe. So then you do randomized control trial. So randomized control trial is where you control both groups. You know, typically it's a double blinded, you know, control trial. And when you do that, you then can prove a point. So those numbers are much smaller because they're very hard to do. I did research for two years at Washington University. It's, it's, it's tough to do randomized control trials, right? They are dependent, they're um, dependent on people, depending on how you're doing, they're very expensive. So that is considered the gold standard. In the randomized control trials, protein has almost always been shown to be beneficial. Hmm. 
So you started out the episode by saying 100 calories of chocolate chip cookies versus 100 calories of chicken breast. So randomized controlled trials, when they look at high quality proteins, have almost always shown a beneficial effect on lipids, um, hypertension, body composition, and it's reproducible. Hmm. So there's those of us in the community that are up against a mouse with a microphone, hmm. right? So yeah. you have these people that because they don't morally or ethically believe that we should be eating animals, are spinning the data. So basically, even if you have accurate data yeah. and you've seen through, you've just literally very eloquently taken us through all the different yeah. steps, because I didn't know that actually, so that was fascinating. And now if you just explain that, so let's say there are people listening right now that are morally against eating meat. So you just think it just hasn't gotten through to them. They don't want to hear the data. And so they're going to hold to the, the myth. Like what are they? It's tricky. So there's this confirmation bias and mm -hmm. you're bringing up a really good point. So individuals that believe that you shouldn't kill animals, um, there's, I, I can appreciate that and I can respect that. Yeah. And there's really Agreed. nothing that we can do. However, you cannot confuse being um, against eating animal products and saying it's good for your health, oh. right? So there's this is two binary decisions here. If you choose that you don't want to eat animals because you feel that animals, um, whatever, shouldn't be eaten, then that's one thing. But you cannot confuse the public, and this is where I come in. Yes. You cannot confuse the public and say, you know what, eating animals is bad for you. Eating animals is gonna give you cancer. That's not true. And people will say, but don't you know? And I get a lot of heat. You've seen on my social media, I get a lot of heat. But I have been at the bedside of many dying individuals. I mean, I did my fellowship in geriatrics. That's the end of life. So when you are at the bedside of people that have broken a hip, people that are never gonna come out of a nursing home, that they're never gonna come out of rehab, it changes your perspective. So you can have a lot of argument in your 40s and 50s about, no, you shouldn't eat animal products. And listen, it's not the only way to get good quality protein, but you cannot say that it is better for your overall health and well-being to mm. not eat animal products. That's not true. And people just take it and put it all as one lump. And it's right, and it's actually so harmful. Yeah. Because of the narrative that is being you know, uh, talked about or Again, that mouse with a microphone. No, the evidence doesn't support that protein causes cancer, which is something I hear all the time. And I get slack from a lot of other physicians. And I'm like, guys, have you actually looked at this? So the way that the committee had come up with that warning was that they threw out the majority of the randomized control trials. Hmm. So the people on the board were largely vegan and vegetarian, which by the way, I was for a very long time. I definitely want to talk about yeah, that. So I was, I was very open-minded and I, I totally understand people's experience with that. So the, the IR committee who you know, talks about what products cause cancer, things like that, largely vegan or vegetarian, the way that they evaluated the data was they threw out, again, we talked about in the beginning, high quality data, because it is small, the randomized controlled trials are small, they threw those out. <laughs> and they kept low quality epidemiological data, which it's backwards. That in the hierarchy of evidence, it's backwards. So people look at this document and say, oh, well, if you read this, it, it tells you that protein is associated with cancer. That's not true. Mm. So if you just were to look at the numbers, if I told you that a relative risk of smoking 
and cancer is a 12. It'd be like, for those people that are not into statistics, anything above two is considered significant. So it's 12. <laughs> I didn't know it was that So it's 12. <laughs> but anything less than two is considered mm. insignificant. It's not statistically significant. It's not relevant. So what if I told you that all the data that has come out has shown that protein's association with cancer relative risk is 1.2? Wow. You would say, well, that's not clinically significant. Mm. So you've got one group mm. that is saying, don't eat animal products. And the question is, why not? So if it's just a morality issue, then we keep it as a morality issue. And then you can have the two groups go back and forth all you want. Yeah. And that's really where I wanted to go in the sense of, I get the moral, the morality thing. Right. Like if that's really what you believe and you go, oh, hey, Dr. Gabrielle Lyne just said that eating protein is actually going to give me longer life. Okay, I hear that, but to be honest, saving animals is more important to okay. me. Respect, like right. mad freaking respect. Yeah, yeah. But the problem is, is that they're not actually saying the truth. Right. And when you have had a gut issue like myself, where for over a year, I could barely even stand up. That's how bad That's a it lot. got. It was really, and a lot. so in those moments, I'm just like, just tell me the truth. Right. Like, if I choose not to do it, that's on me. But I just want the truth and to spend years and years in agony because I, I didn't know what the truth was. Right. And then when I got it to feel that I, I was worried about saying that out loud in the worry that I would offend someone. That's when I was like, this isn't, this is like the society has yeah. gotten so worried about hurting people's feelings that, like you said, we're not separating the two. Right. And that is very impactful. Um, in my clinical practice, the sickest individuals that I've seen are those that are on the other spectrum, that are vegan or really closer to vegetarianism because you're looking at a very high carbohydrate load. And this mm. isn't saying that everybody is experiencing that, right? That's not, I'm not anti-vegan or vegetarian. Again, I was vegetarian for a very long time. It didn't work well for me. I ended up not feeling well. I got pretty sick. Do you mind talking about yeah. that? Yeah. So in college, um, I was largely vegetarian. Um, what made you go vegetarian? That's a really good question. I, I was, it's interesting. I don't think I've ever talked about this, actually. I didn't feel good about eating animals. Hmm. Okay, go on. Um, I had just finished time living on Kauai with my godmother. And on Kauai, it's very nature-connected. And I, you know, in your early 20s, you know how that is, right? You're kind of just very open. And I just didn't feel great about it. Mm. And I couldn't begin to tell you how badly I felt, physically. Mm. Um, I was vegetarian for about four years. Started having all sorts of issues with my teeth. I was losing my hair. I couldn't keep up with my training. I felt really miserable. And there was a moment where I remember just sitting down and having some chicken and feeling really like torn about it. So when you started to eat the meat, you started to feel I better. I felt so much better. Yeah. You know, and the average, it's interesting. We hear a lot that the, the Americans eat too much meat. Mm -hmm. Guess how much meat they eat on average, according to NHANES data, which is the largest data set. I'd like to think it's at least six ounces. 1.8. Oh my God, that breaks my heart. 1.8. So this is the data that comes out of the NHANES data. Yeah. It says 1.8 ounces so, a, a day. Uh, so I'm actually going to make a huge statement right now. I actually, 
I eat me, but the whole episode isn't that you should eat me. Like, I need people no, no, to no, really no. hear. No, 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 it's not. I want to talk about what is true. How did we find out what's true? And then how can you use whatever we're talking about to make the best decision for yourself? Yeah. So even with that, it's like, I started to feel I couldn't eat anything, like anything. And the fact that I could eat a bit of beef was just enough that I, I could stand up in a day. You know, and it's interesting because when we're talking, it doesn't mean that an individual would have to go all carnivore, right? right? And right. I actually don't recommend that. I mean, I am largely animal-based protein because that's what sits well with me. Mm -hmm. I mean, listen, I'm pregnant now, so maybe not at this moment, but you know, this isn't, like you said, about being all protein, everyone needs to eat red meat. That, that's not the topic of conversation, but it is, there is some kind of continuum where we know that if you can anchor your nutrition and protein, high quality animal-based protein, then you can decide what you're gonna add in. Then you can decide what fruits and vegetables you're gonna add mm. in, or is it gonna be fat instead? So, you know, I would challenge everybody, especially as we're in entering a new year, I challenge everyone to eat an optimal protein diet first. All right, what does that exactly that look mean? like? Okay, so this is gonna be a little controversial for people, but I want them to be as open-minded as you were to trying something alternative. One gram per pound ideal body weight of protein. So what that means is if your ideal body weight is 110 pounds, you are gonna shoot for roughly 110 grams of protein. And why, why that? Tell okay, me, explain tell to me the equation so and why. So one of the things that you think is why protein? Well, protein increases, there's something called the thermo effect of feeding. So you're right, when you have 100 grams of whatever chocolate chip cookie and 100 grams of protein, there are de definitely different metabolic benefits. So protein is very hard to overeat. So individuals get going into the holidays thinking about how am I going to optimize my health, especially during COVID, those kinds of things. The way that you're gonna do that is you're gonna nourish your body first. Mm. You're gonna nourish your body with amino acids because that's really why we eat protein. It's gonna help your mood. It's gonna help your gut integrity, right? Um, protein, amino acids are precursors for some neurotransmitters. Serotonin, mood regulation, satiety, when you eat protein first, because of the gut hormone effect, uh, because of the satiation effect, you're much less likely to overeat. So these are good strategies that people haven't put into place yet. Mm. So you do that, you optimize protein, and how could I forget, you wanna optimize body composition because this really isn't about protein. This is about longevity. How do you wanna live? Thank you for bringing it around to that. That's right? so important. You want to be a maverick. You want to be an innovator, a thought leader, or just the people that want to make a difference in the world. Your vessel's got to be in check. Or you want to be around for your grandkids. 100%. Right? How are you going to do that? Yeah. You're not going to do that if you fall and break a hip. Mm. You're not going to do that if you're constantly chasing an eating disorder and obsession of this or that. Right? Not that protein fixes everything, but you want to get a good nutrition plan that's going to get you on track then we have to stop mixing emotion, mm -hmm. the emotional narrative with the science evidence-based nutrition. And you know, it's not to try something forever, but people should give it a shot. Mm -hmm. One gram per pound ideal body weight and how they dose protein throughout the day is very important. Okay, go on. First meal of the day is most important. I don't care what time it is. If it's 11 o'clock, fine. But it's after that overnight fast where your body is more catabolic, meaning it's breaking down that first meal of the day is what sets up your metabolism for the whole, the whole rest of the day. 
you get that right, you nail that protein intake right, you're not gonna chase blood sugar, right? You gotta keep your carbohydrates in check, but you're also gonna stimulate muscle mass. You're gonna stimulate very metabolically active tissue, which is skeletal muscle. And now tell me why that's important. Because it determines everything about body composition. And people were like, well, I don't care about looking good that's in a what bikini, was about, right? That like, was I my next question. Like, yeah. You look amazing, who cares? But what if I told you that it's the Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease, the diseases of aging are not diseases of obesity. Obesity is secondary to disorders of skeletal muscle. We are not over fat as a community. We are under muscles, right? And our conversations are all about excess body fat. Yeah, it's a problem, but it's a symptom. Mm -hmm. It's secondary. Mm. Insulin resistance, all these metabolic issues start in skeletal muscle first. So while everyone is sitting here arguing about animal versus plant, and no, those proteins are not created equal, simply they are not, these are hard, fast biological values, we are missing the much bigger picture. And the much bigger picture is longevity and how you want to age, how you want to function. If you own your own business, when an employee leaves your company, whether on good terms or bad, it can feel, I hate to say it, but it actually can feel personal, like you and you alone are the one to blame. And it actually may even trigger you to lock down your business, not open yourself up and not actually risk trying anyone else. Like you actually would your heart after a bad breakup and avoid looking for that new partner altogether. Well, let's face it, sometimes we can do that with hires as well. And trust me, guys, I've been there. I get the thought of bringing in a new stranger into your business actually fills your heart with more anxiety than it does love and joy. But when you post your jobs on LinkedIn, you can actually feel the confidence that you will find the right person for the right job fast because LinkedIn isn't actually just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion billion with a B professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because guys, it gives you access to professionals that you actually can't find anywhere else. And so LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive, which then makes hiring with confidence easy when you have that many quality candidates. And it's so easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get qualified candidates within 24 hours. So post your jobs for free at linkedin.com slash Lisa. That's linkedin.com slash Lisa to post your job for utterly free. And of course, terms and conditions always apply. As an entrepreneur, one of the biggest challenges you will face is the negative voice in your head. You know who I'm talking about? That maybe not so small part of you that loudly doubts your abilities to actually pull the things off and make a living from your passion project. But you've got to overcome that negative voice in your head, homie, because I'm telling you, you can do it especially if you use Shopify. Now, Shopify is an all-in-one global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From launching your business to hitting a million dollars, Shopify has got you completely covered. And with all the built-in Magic AI award-winning customer service and the internet's best converting checkout, you have everything you need to shut down the voice of doubt and make all your amazing business dreams a reality. That's exactly why, guys, I love Shopify. So if you want to start growing your business with more customers and sales, shut that negative voice down and prove her wrong that you can do it, Shopify is here for you. So go and sign up for just $1 a month with your trial period at shopify.com slash Lisa 
all lowercase. Again, guys, you can go to shopify.com slash Lisa right now to grow your business no matter where you are and what stage it's in. That's shopify.com slash Lisa. And that's why I think it's so important to discuss this, going back to what we were saying, then make the choice. Totally. So if you prefer chocolate cake over getting to the age of 90, go ham, eat the freaking chocolate <laughs> cake, I don't care, yeah. right? Um, but again, I just want to know the truth that I can yeah. then make a decision based on, you know, what type of life I want to live, totally. what's more important to me, living an indulgent life in the moment or living a long life, like that's free for everyone to do. And Totally, and here's the rub. If you optimize protein for skeletal muscle, you'll optimize it for everything else. Oh, You'll on. optimize it for gut health. So I always recommend, and I have a protein cycling diet coming out, and, and we'll talk about that. It's oh, cool. I'm I haven't so really talked about that yet uh, too much. But when you eat 30 to 50 grams of protein per meal, you stimulate this process. You stimulate this process called mTOR, which, you know, without getting too into the weeds, stimulates muscle protein synthesis. Okay. This is important because you care about your metabolism, because you care about your overall metabolic health. As you age, or if you are sedentary, if you're in COVID and you're not training, skeletal muscle is largely stimulated in two ways, exercise and dietary protein. Mm -hmm. So if you are exercising, you know, you can get away with less protein. The question is, why would you? So if you really focus on eating for optimal body composition, the subsequent effect will be increased satiety, mm -hmm. much less likely to overeat. You're much more likely to have stable blood sugar. Oh. Makes sense? Absolutely. So what's then the difference? <clears throat> you said it yeah. earlier, there's difference between plant protein uh, and meat protein. This is like an, I mean, I get hate, so much hate for this conversation. What? And it's so interesting because it's, it's kind of like looking at math numbers. No one be like, oh my God, you said two is worse than four. <laughs> I'm like, uh, last time I checked, you know, it's kind of not that way, yeah. right? So you've got zealots on, on both sides, mm. but animal protein is very particularly high in not just protein, but essential amino acids, which means we have to eat them. And listen, when you think about beef, it has a whole uh, other matrix. It has B12, you know, zinc, iron, broccoli looks different than a steak probably has other amino acids, right? It has um, lower in the essential amino acids. But does broccoli have protein? <laughs> very little, <laughs> very little. And beans have very little, pro I mean, people think that they are such a high protein right. food. It's not. Mm. So when we think just broadly about protein, it's when it comes from plants, it's, bind in, it's bound in fiber. So there's a protein matrix. But animal-based products, it's almost 100% bioavailable. Mm and the essential amino acids are much higher. So this goes back to the six cups of quinoa equals one small chicken breast. That's insane. It's insane. Six cups? It's insane because we're really not eating for protein, we're eating yeah. for those amino acids. Mm -mm, I see. So if people are gonna say, well, I don't wanna eat beef, and I'm gonna say, no problem. You just have to make sure you're supplementing appropriately. Right. Which is like, it's a lot of stuff. You know, but then again, we have to separate. Is this an ethical conversation? If it's ethical, moral, then that, that's one aspect. But if it truly is about health, there's no reason people should not be eating meat. If, if that is the true concern, and we're talking about authentic, evidence-based research, mm. there's no reason people should be cutting back on red meat. So if people really want to optimize their health, 
they have to sift through all the noise. But I heard you say actually that, um, and again, I do not want to attack people, but I'm just trying to understand. Yeah. So right now I'm going through understanding, I'm the learner, yeah. so I'm asking you questions. I'm sure people are going to get offended, but I just truly want to know the truth. Right. I heard you say that most vegans and vegetarians are young. Yeah. Explain that one. Yeah, so um, a lot of the vegan vegetarian community is much younger. And 20s and 30s, because they can manage it. So when you're young, you can get away with eating less animal products. Uh -huh. Just biologically, because as you age, the skeletal muscle changes, the tissue changes. You get this phenomenon called anabolic resistance, which means the muscle doesn't respond to protein as well. Mm. But when you're younger, you can be more vegan and vegetarian, and you're doing a lot of physical activity, you're making up for it. But what I've seen in over around 15 years in practice, which is nothing to you know, kind of scoff at, that's a, over a decade of in <laughs> practice, seeing a lot of patients, that the vegan vegetarians burn out. That once they hit mm. 40, they're no longer vegan and vegetarian. They've got the ones that I've seen and the ones that have come through the clinic and the ones that I have gone through the geriatric clinic, their dentition is really bad. Their um, bone density is really bad, really poor. They're much higher risk for falling and breaking a hip. Hair loss, tremendous hair loss, just very aged. Um, you know, it's just they, yeah. they don't last because you have to get nourishment. You know, people ultimately want to live a healthy life. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so when you're young, you can get away with it. I'm going to, God, people do want it, but not many people. Not a lot of people want it bad enough that they're willing to sacrifice. Like for instance, cake is delicious, <laughs> right? Like my jam is ice cream. I'm a freaking ice cream fan, but okay. since my gut, it's just been impossible. Yeah. But um, I understand the inclination to go towards lovely food. So when you say people want good health, I think they want it in theory, but I don't necessarily know if people are willing to sacrifice, and that's why I keep going back to it. If you're not willing to sacrifice, it's fine. Totally. But just admit, right. I'm not willing to sacrifice not having this absolutely. ice cream for an extra 10 years of my life. It's abso absolutely true. It's much easier to eat a high carbohydrate diet than it is to eat a protein forward diet yeah it is and that's Simply. why it fascinated me that yeah. you were you worked at the ger geriatric, geriatric home uh, was it home yeah, yeah. yeah. so I, I did a fellowship in nutritional sciences geriatrics and obesity medicine which to me is almost like that's so important to then go oh right. this is what happens if you do this for 30 years that's why I feel so passionate about this message mm. because I've seen the other end and all your viewers will tell you that maybe they feel that they're not ready to change what i would simply say is how are your parents doing <laughs> right because now when we're looking at aging parents and aging grandparents they're getting skinnier they're getting frailer we're seeing health decline and again this isn't just a conversation about protein it's about optimizing right. health and longevity and the way in which you optimize health and longevity is by optimizing skeletal muscle. Hmm. Muscle is the organ of longevity. It determines everything about the trajectory as you age. Let me share something with you. So yeah, I did my fellowship in geriatrics. One of my responsibilities was I did research for two years. 
and we looked at midlife weight gain, 40s and 50s, and brain volume. We did fMRI studies. The wider the waistline, the lower the brain volume. In individuals 40s and 50s, we were seeing changes in brain matter, secondary to obesity. Jeez. And what really, you know, I practice this concept called muscle-centric medicine. And it was it, at this moment where I was imaging this woman's brain, and you know, you spend a lot of time with them. You do cognitive testing, you see them in training, you, you do, you know, do all their weigh-ins, you do all their measurements and their blood work. She was a mother of three kids. How old roughly? She was roughly, I want to say 48. Okay. And she'd always put her health last. Mm -hmm. At 48, I knew, I had an idea of what the next 10 to 20 years was going to look like for her. This, right? So this was a woman who was going towards some kind of cognitive impairment, dementia. And how could you see that? Because of the change in her brain that she had not yet experienced. So basically what I'm saying is these diseases of aging like Alzheimer's that we see and we think are inevitable, they happen in midlife. Alzheimer's, one aspect of Alzheimer's is type 3 diabetes of the brain. So it's not about just the aesthetic aspect. And muscle is so underrepresented mm. in the literature as it relates to health, longevity, and well-aging. It's kind of like a sidestep. You know, we always measure body fat. What's your body fat? Yeah, so why is that then? Because it's a narrative problem. <laughs> oh, yes. We have a failure of the fat-focused paradigm. By constantly talking about obesity, by constantly talking about how over fat we are, we're not, that's secondary. It is the focusing on the wrong thing, right? You kind of focus on the thing that you get more of. So we're focusing on adipose tissue, it's the wrong tissue. Mm -hmm. You have to focus on skeletal muscle. And the narrative in the medical community is wrong. And here's the biggest thing that I come up against. It's not that the information is so hard to understand. The biggest task that I have ahead of me is being able to break down false narratives. Mm. And what happens is false narratives kill people. So they have a hard, fast, cognitive biased belief that they believe. And then they hit 50. And, or then they hit 60 and they are so gung-ho that there comes a point where there is no return. Mm. So my biggest challenge is not just about educating the science, but it's through breaking through the narratives. Mm. And that's what I'm up against. And that's what everybody who cares about evidence-based medicine is up against. As a culture and as a community, we are all up against is finding the truth. You healed mm. from a higher meat diet. Mm. And I have seen countless patients heal from a protein-forward diet. Truly, but yet in the narrative that we hear, it's don't eat red meat, it's bad for you. Well, it's actually not. It's one of the most nutrient-dense sources of food that we have. It's a superfood. Mm. It's like the OG of superfoods. It's not processed. You know, there are ways to get it done humanely if that's how you care about, you know, if those are the things, there's ways to get local meat that is responsible. 
How would you advise someone even start that? So let's say they've watched this, they're like, okay, I'm convinced, I want to start, but I totally. actually don't know. Like, where do they start? How do they assess? Like, give super yep. detailed of yep. like, if I was you. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> if I was you and I was coming from a place of maybe discomfort of eating animal-based proteins or even fish, the first meal of the day is the most important. So that first meal of the day, you get a robust amount of protein, and that can come from any kind of source. If you do a shake, a beef shake, um, some people do whey or eggs, or if they're vegan or vegetarian, a plant-based protein shake that has a full complement of amino acids. Okay. So that's like a rice pea blend. I personally don't recommend that so much because we've been studying those. I mean, we know what animal products do and how long we've been eating them. We don't know what a... Uh, pea isolate does necessarily mm. for people. So I would say use that intermittently. And then you want to keep your carbohydrates lower in the morning. So mm. the reason is, is because you don't want to spike insulin. Mm. So anything over 40 grams of protein can cause a more robust insulin response. So we, you want to keep that first meal. And why don't you want to spike it in the morning? It drops your blood sugar. Because mm. then, you then you're going to be hungry, you're going to be tired, or you're going to have brain fog. And then you're going to be constantly wanting to eat. Mm -hmm. That is negative, Houston. That is not a good strategy. Yeah. So you get the first meal robust in protein. And then, actually, this goes into a little bit of protein cycling. You can do one of two things. You can do an even distribution of protein throughout the day, which means you can have 43 times a day if you want. A lot of people nowadays don't like to have a big, robust meal. I don't know, do you eat a big? I used to be that person at mm -hmm. Quest. Okay. We were surrounded by bodybuilders and right. fitness people. So, you know exactly so it was six meals, mm -hmm. but it was like, if I was hungry at 1.59 p.m. <laughs> and I wasn't supposed to have my right. meal to 2 p.m., I would wait. And I've actually had an extremely unhealthy relationship mm. with food um, up until my gut health. And that was when almost everything changed. And I was like, I don't, like, I don't count calories. I don't care what I'm eating. All I care about is how I feel. And literally, for the last five years, this has been my journey. And that's why I don't count calories, calories anymore, ever. I, I, if I'm hungry, I eat. If I've already eaten my meals and I'm still hungry, I still keep eating. Got it. Um, if I'm tired, I go, oh, what did I eat that made me tired? Like, I'm so just... How do I feel to them? How right. do I adjust my diet? Um, but everything stemmed from having a very unhealthy mm. relationship with food. It's almost just like a eating disorder controlled and given a forgiveness because they wrap it around right. bodybuilding. It's obsessive. It's <laughs> it insane. It can be. And you probably don't need to have six meals a day. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, exactly. you want, especially as you get older and more mature, all your listeners... They want to be able to have a bolus amount of protein. Mm -hmm. And people are like, well, why is she talking about 30 to 50 grams at one time? Because you care about those amino acids. And you want to get those amino acids to a peak level so you stimulate the muscle tissue and you have subsequent effects in the body. So doing them smaller amounts throughout the I day doesn't give that. you the exactly. results. So, right. what, so what happens is, interesting, then you're eating sub-threshold throughout the whole day. <laughs> That's what it felt like. Yeah. I never felt satisfied. Right. And that's why I'd be at 159. I'm freaking starving. Right. And yeah, now I literally am just like, how hungry am I? Oh, that means I need an extra strip of bacon or... Right. But if you'd balance your protein and you optimize it in a per meal basis, so between 30 and 50 grams. Okay. And listen, there's other strategies and ways in which you can protein cycle. 
So you could actually even do a smaller meal of protein at that secondary meal. Mm. But I, I really want people to get a core fundamental approach down. And that core fundamental approach, and I challenge everyone to try this, is to eat three meals of between 30 and 50 grams per day to see, you know, depending on what their weight is, what their ideal body weight is, and see how they feel. And then keeping your carbohydrates in check, for depending on how many, much activity, mm. and the fat just kind of as needed. You shouldn't go crazy, but there's natural, you know, there's naturally occurring fats and eggs and steak and, and things of that nature. I love that. So starting the day off yep. really strong. You've given very detailed of what yep. someone can start with. How do they then, like, what are the things they should look out for to say, how am I feeling? Because yep. I've, for five years, I've had to literally every meal go, does this make me feel mm. better or worse? Um, so I've kind of already trained myself, but how do you advise people to go? Because your advice is amazing, but going back to what we keep saying is it start ends with up one being meal. how you start, feel. Start with one meal. Okay. Don't make too many different changes at once so that way you can track. So you, you eat your normal food, but have that one meal, get that one meal right. Mm -hmm. The biggest thing that I hear is people say, oh, I just can't digest protein. That is the biggest thing. So perhaps they have low stomach acid and by adding in some kind of digestive enzyme, they might feel a lot better. Mm. And you do that 15 minutes before you eat. And then they can assess how they're doing. But by doing that first meal, getting that first meal right, they'll feel better by that second meal. Yeah. And then they'll start to see what it feels like when the macro balance is, is out of whack. Oh, girl, I could talk to you for so long. <laughs> I have so many questions. Um, the thing that I have, I want to ask you though, is how do people not dismiss you as being another person that's talking about, right? You, there's so much information out yeah. there. Because I've lived what you're saying, that's why I'm like, you're the shit, like you talk real, like yeah. especially because people will, it, you, leave, you leave yourself open to being attacked, totally. right? Which to me, me is even more impressive because you're like, regardless of whether I'm gonna get attacked or not. I have I've a responsibility. Seen, I have a responsibility. I have a responsibility. You know, and they'll say, but you're a physician. I've had seven years of nutrition training, unbiased nutrition training, and I've just seen a lot. But I've seen a lot of things that are so significant and by significant, I mean death. And so it is, I couldn't live with myself if I didn't speak out, I have a responsibility. And there are some days where it's not easy, most of the days, every time I post yeah. something, I'm like, oh God, just, you know, delete, block, delete, block, you know? But if I don't, then who's gonna do it? Who is gonna do it? And I'm not, coming on here trying to be extreme. No, I am no, trying to give evidence-based information and clean up the narrative. The balance likely lies somewhere in the middle of vegan and carnivore, right? Mm -hmm. But we should be able and to be able to be open to the conversation of looking at evidence without emotion. Mm. If we can't do that, then what are we? We are never gonna make improvements. And then we're gonna be victim to what people tell us. And if you are victim to what people tell you, don't have a chance. What does success look like to you then here? Uh, that's a big one. I really wanna change this narrative and I wanna change the obesity paradigm. Mm. It shouldn't be fat focused. It should be muscle centric. And the more people that can learn this and the more people that can teach this, 
the information will spread and the impact will spread. You know? Because I can, I've seen what happens if it doesn't. Yeah. You know, I'm not, you know, it's not like we're arguing and we're, you know, in our 20s and 30s and you shouldn't kill animals and you shouldn't do this. Like, that's not the argument. The argument is how do you want to live? What is the trajectory of the way in which your survivability is? You know, when you're in medicine, it's not a, you know, it's not a forgiving profession, mm -hmm. especially when you're doing geriatrics, especially when you're spending time in palliative care and you're sitting at the bedside of people where that's, that's it. You know, and then looking back at what are the choices that they made and what was the information that they heard? <sighs> we have to get the message out there. And the mouse with the microphone and the plant-based narrative, and the anti-animal narrative is way too loud. Mm -hmm. And people don't have a decade to give up. And their parents don't have a decade to give up. You know? So it's... It's my responsibility and anyone else's responsibility that is willing to speak up. Well, girl, thank <laughs> you. Like, seriously, yeah. thank you for coming on. I really wanted to talk about yeah. this subject. There was, um, you know, and so you were definitely the person that came to mind to have this open and honest discussion. Um, where can people find you and yeah. in, all the incredible work you're doing? Thank you. So they can find me on my website at Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, and I'm very active on Instagram, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon and then Twitter and Facebook, same. Guys, guys, go check her out. The fact that she was able to come on here with such courage and bravery because her mission really is to impact people and to actually change things, like that is so admirable, I cannot even begin to express. So thank you, girl. Thank you. Um, guys, if you did find this episode impactful, please, please do share it. <laughs> Click that subscribe link down there. And if you're not following me, follow me at Lisa Billiou. And until next time, guys, be the hero of your own life.